Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I'm coming back this time after about 25,000 people heard me crying on the last episode. I'm still experiencing a little bit of a vulnerability hangover for that, but thank you for all the nice messages, and I'm sorry for those who I made uncomfortable. I am podcasting again because I don't know if I've got a little bit of the fire back in me or if there's just some really, really interesting things coming up. Since I am feeling vulnerable, it's nice to have two friends on uh, who are going to help us talk about what's going on with the remnant movement, which everyone knows is the Denver Snuffer movement. We've had Adrian Larson on before and a few others talking about this sort of, I don't, I don't know if you want to call it a break off or what it is. But before we get into that, I just want to introduce our guests. We're going to just use their first names because they are still in a complicated situation. Is that a good way to phrase it? Yeah, that's sure. a great way to put it. Okay, yes. So Peter and Wendy, can you say hello? Hi. Hello. Okay, so tell us, um, you guys, can we at least say uh, kind of the general area that you're in Utah? Is that okay? Sure, yeah. We're in Utah County, just south of Provo. and. Uh, yeah, we've lived here for since, well, we got married in 2000, so and we've been, we've here been ever since, yeah. Probably was the least likely to be in Utah County, but we're here. We're still here. <laughs> Will you guys give our listeners sort of a 101 on what the snuffer movement is, what the remnant movement is, generally? Sure. Um, I think it's very misunderstood because it's small, which is not uncommon, you know, for smaller things to be misunderstood. I would say that if I was going to simplify it, I would say it's the democratization of Mormonism. Like, just very simply, it's this idea that everyone has equal access to God. Yeah, you've brought this up before, Lindsay. There's a tension in all the branches of Mormonism between leadership, scriptures, and personal revelation. You know, and where people choose to put their loyalty and their personal revelation and scriptures and almost no leadership whatsoever. Is that helpful? Yeah. You know, to kind of summarize, there are people that follow the tenets of what they believe to be Joseph Smith's teachings. You don't really follow Brigham Young, correct? Correct. Yeah. Correct. So it's kind of like, hey, what's authentic Christianity? Is there an original? Was there an original under Joseph Smith that we can kind of re-restore? Like we, we talk about preserving the restoration and kind of going back to that Kirtland period when there were angels and and ministering spirits and people were giving blessings left and right and there were spiritual gifts. That's kind of what we're seeking to reclaim. And maybe even going further back to kind of that original religion of Adam and Eve and, and that kind of thing. So So yeah. last time we, we did this interview, it was said that you don't really it's not organized. But that's that's probably the thing that confuses people the most because while you're not organized, you do have profits but not in the traditional sense. Well, we're not organized in the sense of people just gather together in fellowships and you just, yeah, once you're in a fellowship, there usually isn't any leadership. No one's called or anything. You just gather together and agree on what you want to do. And if some person wants to host a meeting and have sacrament, at their home, then they'll invite everyone and you can come. And if you want to study scriptures, another person might invite people to come and study scripture. Um, as far as prophets, so 
there's Denver Snuffer. Most, uh, he kind of was the origin of this whole remnant movement. And he is seen by most people as a prophet, but I say prophet knowing that that's a very loaded word coming from the LDS church where we have in, in the church, there's this, there's this teaching that you should follow the prophet. And if you are getting revelation that's counter to what the prophet is, then you are an error and you need to, you need to do what the prophet says. And it's not, there's not the same sort of sentiment um, in the remnant movement. Tell me if you don't want to answer this, if this is too controversial, but do you, you guys are um, active Latter-day Saints in the mainstream church, correct? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Can you say, we're, I want to interview you guys about your story when you're more open, because I think right now you're active, you hold callings and you're not completely out, right? <laughs> we would say. Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, this, this is probably going to be one of a half dozen things. I mean, our kids blab every week so it's kind of <laughs> it's inevitable at some point yeah, yeah so this is the deal so yeah so we are we actively participate we don't have recommends right now because you, you know various things that we've spoken to our leadership about not because we're unworthy but because it's kind of there's a juxtaposition between what we're practicing and believing um inside and outside of the church and that's the one thing about the remnant movement is there's people in the church out the church People attend other churches. People practice Native American practices. There's such a diversity of practice and belief. And you can be part of this and still go to your other church, and it's not a big deal. The only people it's a big deal to, I think, is LDS leadership. So, Can you explain what, and just like briefly, what attracted you guys to the movement? That's an answer for Peter. <laughs> <laughs> so I've always been fascinated by truth. And I mean, I'm sure you'll come around to this if I don't bring it up. So I'll just bring it up. This concept of the second comforter um, is something that really appeals to me. When I was a freshman at BYU, I took a Book of Mormon class. And that doctrine was taught very clearly and openly in the Book of Mormon class. So for those who aren't familiar Kind of the idea in Second Nephi 31 and 32, where if you accept the doctrine of Christ, you know, repent or baptized, receive the Holy Ghost, and continue to labor following the Spirit and studying your scriptures, that at some point the Savior himself will manifest himself to you in the flesh, and he will minister to you. So if the Holy Ghost is the first com comforter, the Savior is the second comforter. So that idea has always been something very appealing to me. Um, and that was something that Denver wrote pretty extensively about when he was in the church. Um, and so that's something that really drew me. And the fact that he was not doctrinaire about things that, hey, give this a try, try this, uh, study this out for yourself. He wasn't dictating. He was just exploring ideas. I love that approach. There was a meekness about it rather than saying, hey, if you do it this way, you've got to do it my way or the highway kind of thing, you know? Yeah. And for me, I would say what drew me was that Peter has always been a seeker and our entire marriage, we have explored so many different um, facets, many of uh, the different branches of Mormonism. And we would go all these different places and 
we ended up at a fellowship and I thought it would just be like one more branch of Mormonism that we're just exploring. And I guess my litmus test has always been by their fruits, you shall know them. And the fruits were good. And so we have stayed and people have been so kind and so Christ-like. And I'm sure you can find people like that all over the place, but this is where we found a home. Yeah, it really felt like coming home. I know that sounds cheesy, but that really is what it feels like. It's like, we really feel like this is home to us. And I mean, we've attended lots of places. We even went to AUB meetings and Church of uh, Community of Christ meetings. I mean, we've tried all kinds of different stuff um, in our effort to discover truth and and learn more about the restoration. But this really has been home for us. Okay, yeah. And that's something that I would say appeals to a lot of people is the sort of flexibility and practice that the people, especially LDS people who don't find a lot of wiggle room for interpretation, belief, practice have. But there's also this extra component of everyone sort of respects, like you guys have different fellowships that believe things that other fellowships don't believe. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah, The only unifying thing amongst the fellowships is this idea of, uh, like there's a statement of of principles, the doctrine of Christ and the Sermon on the Mount are kind of the two things that unify us. And you can believe whatever you want, crazy, wacky, normal, all around that, and there's no one correlating you, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It's hard, I think, for LDS people to wrap their head around because we're so used to experiencing our Mormonism uh, with authority guiding it. So that even was a hard thing for me to grasp. But I think that 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 is the thing that appeals to a lot of people. But let me just ask you this hard question, and then I want to get into updates about the remnant movement. So I've I love you guys. You guys have been great friends, good supporters of mine. You've been able to walk me through and kind of explain this to me. And you you actually, the, the picture that you paint is really beautiful. And I believe it's sincere because I know you and I believe you both to have integrity. But I'm struggling right now with Mormon doctrine. What is there that you like about it? What it, I mean, right now, it's hard for me to decouple it from the homophobia and the way that the LDS church is really aggressively going after the marginalized. So what is it about Mormonism that's worth keeping? So can, can I quote Reza Aslan back to you? Of course. <laughs> so Reza made that really cool statement. And I, I don't know that it originated with him. It might be a Buddhist thing, but uh, he said that, you know, if you dig six one foot wells, you're never going to strike water. But if you dig one six-foot well, there you'll find water. He chose to dig his well in Sufism. I personally have chosen to dig my well in Mormonism, if that makes sense. So I feel like I've struck water, but it took a lot of effort. And some of that effort was throwing away some of that baggage. And so I'll share a story with you, something that happened very recently in my fellowship. So it's a firsthand account that maybe will help you grasp how, for us, the mandate is love. In a recent podcast, Denver even said that charity matters more than knowledge, which we know from the scriptures, charity is the number one virtue that Paul, you know, that that pure love. So we had a fellow just visiting our our fellowship, uh, not a member. I think he's a member of the LDS Church, kind of uh, a little bruised and battered. 
And so we sat there, we were reading scriptures together. Um, and he came out to us as gay. He said, look, I don't know what to do. I'm gay. I, uh, this is something I've struggled with. I've been through discipline with the church, you know, and like, as he said that, so there's a lot, there were a lot of older folks in the room. And in my heart, I was like, oh my goodness, he's, someone's going to say something hurtful. That was my fear, you know? And instead, this old gentleman just opened up and said, you know, we love you. We love you. We love you. We love you. You just couldn't say it enough. And for me, like, that was just very powerful to watch someone who'd been raised as a very conservative Latter-day Saint. In a different generation. In an entirely different generation, express such love to this youngster. And I'm like, man, this is bearing fruit. And I'm not saying that there aren't issues within the movement and different views on these things, but the fact that there was this deep expression of love, I was like, that gives me a ton of hope. Um, and I don't have all the answers, you know, I don't like doctrinally, how do you explain these things? I don't know, but I do think that love is the thing that matters most. Wendy, do you want to speak to that at all? Yeah. So. Hmm. I'm wondering what I can add because I actually wasn't there that night yeah. and it sounds so beautiful. And yeah, that's something that with the whole, um, the awareness that has grown about LGBT issues, because I was raised in the church. I was raised in a very conservative family that taught me the horrible things like, you know, gay people, they choose to be gay because they want to be more promiscuous or, gay people it's it's not a choice but maybe they were abused as children and it's not truly who they are and i think i got to a point in my life where i realized that i do not like it when i share my personal experience of how i'm experiencing the world with people and people tell me oh you don't actually feel that way um let me tell you how you feel let me tell you what you experienced and I realized that that's what we tend to do with LGBT. And it's really just if if someone tells you that that's their experience, you should listen to them and accept that that is their experience and with understanding and love. And that's what I appreciate about what happened this one night, just because we haven't had a whole lot of experience in our fellowship with people coming forward with LGBT issues um, or coming, yeah, coming out. And so I appreciated having heard that from Peter, that that was what had happened that night, because I do believe that that's how Christ, that's what, that's what really matters is that we love each other. And, and I think it's expressed clearly in kind of our, not just that at one moment, but our practice, if someone comes to us, asking for baptism, we don't put them through a litany of questions to prove their worthiness for baptism. That's between them and God. If someone comes to me and says, will you baptize me? My responsibility is to get in the water and perform the ordinance, not put them through a worthiness interview. Because the whole idea of baptism is that none of us is worthy, that we need Christ. We're all unworthy. And we all need him. And my job is not to judge anyone else, but to love them and to provide the ordinance if they ask for it. 
you know? So, and so, so yeah. the name escapes me right now, but um, there was a ward in Salt Lake City that I think it went on for like 20 years. It still, still might even go on where uh, a group of gay men, gay LDS men, started their own ward, basically, a gay Mormon ward, because they were trying to reconcile, you know, these these two different conflicting, at times, identities. Oh, and, wow, that's interesting. Yeah, and I can't remember the name. Someone out there can, can leave it in the comment section. So, theoretically, under the sort of diversity of, of the movement, there could be a group of trans individuals who could form their own fellowship if they wanted, correct? Yeah, uh, I think so. I think so. Okay, yeah. so so let's just like name off the diversity because this is what I think is uh, so compelling about the movement, and it's really in line with you know at Sunstone we we're trying to take a more I would say intellectual, dispassionate approach to Mormonism, but along the same vein where there are a lot of ways to do this. There are more than one way to Mormon, and you guys are putting this in practice. So there are fellowships where. I don't know. Give me some of the the diversity. Can can women baptize in some fellowships? Can women be ordained? What are what are the most extreme within the Mormon context? Yeah. So that's hard because each fellowship is autonomous. So it's difficult to know exactly what every other fellowship is and isn't doing. Um, and it's also any fellowship can call for a general conference. So it gets kind of interesting because. You know, yeah. So, for example, I know that there are fellowships that have polygamists in them. So, to you know, obviously that thank has something. Thank you for admitting that, that. What was that? I said thank you for admitting that. Some people yeah. don't want to so, admit that. Yeah. So there are, but Denver has publicly said that look, we need to. Nothing good has come of plural marriage or polygamy in a Mormon context. That fruit hasn't been so terrific. Um, and so he, he has asked that that not be perpetuated another generation. You know, so if a guy's got a couple of wives and joins the fellowship, they can continue to live as husband and wife and to take care of one another, but they're to teach their kids not to do that. So that is one area where maybe there's been some direct, but if they choose not to listen to Denver, no one's going to go and knock on their door and say, now you're out of alignment, you know, like there's nothing like that. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, I mean, the diversity that there's people who have a very Hebraic, like they've adopted this like Jewish Mormonism type thing where they like keep the Jewish holy days. I know there's a fellowship that does that. I know in our fellowship. So um, once we got together, um, just all the women, it was on September 23rd, 2017. And we just gave each other blessings, like people that I didn't, I hadn't even met before, just gave me blessings. And that's something we tend to, we, we've done in, in our fellowship as well. Just sometimes we'll do blessings and the men in the fellowship are often, this was something that was very surprising to me. And I'm still so church broke. I'm so like LDS that I'm. I am not at a place where I'm totally like, I haven't learned to be comfortable with it yet, but often men will ask the women for their guidance. They want us to um, share what revelation we've received, or they will ask us to give them blessings. And that's so out of what I have been used to 
that it actually is, I, I don't think I've entirely become comfortable with it, but I think that's a wonderful place to be in where there is such equality in so many ways and not equality that I've experienced before. And in that way, you really are preserving, is that the word you use, preserving the restoration or? Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, I like that, preserving the restoration. That's the title of one of Denver's books, but there really is what we're trying to do. And not just preserve the restoration, but embrace truth wherever it's found. You know, if we go read the Bhagavad Gita and there's some really cool things in there, we're completely at liberty to embrace those things. Or if in Hinduism, there's things in the Vedas or, you know, and uh, like uh, me and a bunch of guys in our fellowship got together and studied the Nag Hammadi library and we're reading the Gnostic Gospels. And, you know, it's <laughs> it's a bunch of church nerds that get together and just like parse things together. Um, but ultimately, it all boils back down to that doctrine of Christ in, you know, 3rd Nephi 11 and 2nd Nephi 31. As long as we're unified in those things, it's pretty hard to go too far off track, I guess you could say. But no one judges each other. It's, it's, it's quite fascinating. So this idea of building Zion is kind of looking a little more possible because you have people that are willing to embrace all these new ideas. So, so all of that sounds great to me. I love myself a good church nerd, but one <laughs> of my uh, consistent criticisms is I just don't see how you guys can maintain sort of this flexibility without getting tangled up in bureaucracy. Cause it seems like once you get too organized, too big, then you have to deal with the same sort of challenges that a lot of, a lot of different, you know, organized religion deal with. And and that's what I want to talk about because I've been hearing rumors about updated scripture projects and temple projects and things like that. So I want to get into to those and okay. and my listeners can't know this, but I can know this. Uh you two will give it to me straight. They've never tried to downplay or as as you heard Peter acknowledged that there are polygamous fellowships. There I think there's people within the movement who you know, are still in that LDS mindset, or I guess human mindset of we we want to sort of downplay the problems and make it seem like it's perfect. And of course, nothing is perfect. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Okay. So we so this all started when I got word that there was a publication, an anonymous publication out called Oh my gosh, it's how to have, have your, your second, second comforter. comforter. Thank you. <laughs> it was about the second comforter, and I heard that it was by uh, the artist, the Mormon artist, John McNaughton. And now, if no one has seen John McNaughton's paintings, you need to go Google him right now. He is, I would call him a pro-Republican, uh, well, not even Republican, extremely conservative, alt-right propagandist painting. I mean, painter. His his. I studied art in college. I don't think that there's a lick of creative spark in what he does. He's very, um, and I'm going to be really hard on him because I just think he is, he's racist. He's homophobic. He's deeply misogynistic in his paintings. And And he lionizes Trump. Sorry. He lionizes Trump. Like Trump is some, is going to save us all, which is funny. Yeah. It's so weird. It's like, Trump is God, you know, he's done short of painting him holding hands with Jesus, but I'm sure that's going to come. And, you know, he's famous for painting political 
figures and I think there was one of like Obama holding the constitution and he was setting it on fire. Shredded it or something. Yeah, yeah I remember that. Oh my that. goodness. Yeah, really subtle. So, uh, yeah, I had heard that he wrote this book about the second comforter and I was like, what? So, because second comforter right now is really associated with the remnant movement. Like you said earlier, it's this idea that you can get a witness yourself. So I was like, oh my gosh, what is this? So I put it out on Facebook and I said, I'm hearing that McNaughton is the author and several people confirmed that. But uh, do you guys want to clarify what you know from your perspective on that? So yes, yeah, so my understanding is that he is probably the author of that book. But that doctrine is not unique to our movement. I mean, it is an LDS doctrine. It's just been de-emphasized over the last 50 years. Like I said, I learned about it in my BYU Book of Mormon class. Um, and that book, the I've read the book. I read it a few years ago, but it seems to have been uh, gaining notoriety, you know. Um, and there are some aspects of the book where I'm like, oh, this is a good book. But I don't think that, yeah, it's not. I mean, the, the book's remnant adjacent, I guess you could say, as far as what it teaches. Um, like if it's squared with scripture, it probably does about 80% of the time, but John is not affiliated with the movement at all. I, he's never been at a meeting. I've never, he hasn't been rebaptized as far as I know. Um, and I mean, personally, I don't know the guy, but I don't know that he'd be a good fit if he's that in the, if you got that strongly held beliefs and you're not open to, persuasion you're not going to be a good fit you know what i mean yeah so yeah no i uh, i don't know him either but i had the i have the exact same response to his art which is the only way i know him as you do Lindsay. i yeah i i don't know that he's a person i would ever i could be friends with or even really want to be friends with and and denver's publicly criticized like political leaders i mean on his Sean McCraney interview that he did a little while ago, um, he was not complimentary of the president at all. Um, and so I don't think that they would see eye to eye on that. And so, yeah, I mean, if you look at a normal distribution, just like standard bell curve, most of us are somewhere in that middle, that first standard deviation. Wendy and I joke about how I'm one standard deviation to the right and she's within one standard deviation to the left. Most people are somewhere in the middle because, you know, we just we see things as they appear and we realize that there's lots of problems. John McNaughton would be like five standard deviations to the right. I think if you had to characterize the movement in any way, politically, very broadly, this is very a gross generalization. I don't think the movement really lands anywhere on that X axis so much as if you had a Y axis maybe a little libertarian, like a little more free, you know, as far as that things, which kind of, which is why the no hierarchy thing is so appealing to everyone. So, so, you know, we're talking about all this diversity and I'm talking from a liberal perspective. Do we have fellowship for trans people and things like that? You, uh, now we're talking about having fellowships for extremely all right people that, that gets tricky, right? Yeah, because I think it's dangerous. it does. Yeah. And I think that as if you go far to the extremes, that it becomes really difficult to 
uh, find common ground, you know, because extremism, you know, generally lends itself to nuttiness. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I don't want to be rude to anyone, but the more extreme people get, it, it just ends up being some nuttiness that happens. Uh, and I don't know, even if you're talking about religion or politics, I mean, I'm both a participant and an observer in this movement. You know what I mean? Um, and so it's quite interesting, but uh, yeah, I mean, if I were to characterize the movement on whole, I would say it's moderate to the right a little and maybe libertarian, but there is a lot of diversity. I mean, I'm not, there is no trans fellowship or LGBTQ fellowship, but I'm just, you know, I'm saying that, that it, there's no rules against that, there's no you know. There's no reason they could. Well, be. and I didn't mean to put that on the other side of the extreme because I think being a you know, trans person is not an ideology. Yeah, it's not an ideology. Yeah, it's, it's, an a, it's, it's an identity. It's yeah. 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 Okay. So, uh, yeah, I just had to get the John McNaughton thing out of the way because I thought that was fun. Yeah. So. I mean, it's, yeah, he is not affiliated with the movement. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about what is going on right now. I've heard of a scripture project. In fact, I've ordered a set of scriptures. They're beautiful. Oh, cool. They're expensive. Yeah. They are, they are, yeah. yeah. The actual- so we we were loosely associated with that. The scripture project has been going on for a couple of years, a few years. And the idea was to try and recover as best as possible the best version of the Book of Mormon and the New Testament as possible. Uh, they relied pretty heavily on Royal Skousen's Book of Mormon. Um, and... Um, trying to just recover certain things there. Um, the, the Old Testament, we did the best we could. <laughs> um, Wendy and I edited the book of Deuteronomy. Yes, which was, which is a interesting. bit of, yeah. And so basically there was a scripture, there were two bodies of people that decided, hey, let's try and do the best we can to recover the best versions of the scriptures as possible. You will you will note that section one thirty two has been removed, so we do not have section one thirty two in our teachings and commandments, which is the equivalent of the doctrine and covenants. Um, and so that's a significant change. And I can actually send you a list if you're interested, Lindsay, of the revelations that were removed and the reasons for their removal and what was included. So the things that were put in. That the that are not in the traditional LDS doctrine and covenants, but that were revelations given to Joseph Smith, um, but were never included or canonized. Yeah, I'd love to see that. I would love yeah. to see that. So, can you give we we've explained this before in the podcast, but tell people what like how that started, uh, what it sort of took to get it to where it is today, and yeah. So, uh, my understanding is there were two separate groups of people who had the same idea. We started working on it emailed Denver um, and said, hey, this is what we're working on. And someone else emailed him. And so he kind of just put them in touch with each other. And so they got together and started working on it together. And it was a pretty, like a fairly large committee. Um, and they just kind of labored through recovering and, and trying to go back to, and the Joseph Smith Papers Project was really helpful in this because you can go and read word for word what was in there. So I'll give you a really small example of a change that was made in the scriptures. So in Moses chapter six, um, there's a verse of scripture that talks about the Holy Ghost being the record of heaven. And if you look at the original handwritten version, 
It talks about the peaceable things of the kingdom, uh, the peaceable things of heaven, and the keys of the kingdom, or the keys of, yeah, the keys of the kingdom. In the LDS edition, that phrase, keys of the kingdom, is removed. But in our edition, it's been reinstated. You know? So this idea of keys being lauded over someone as a way to govern or control them, we're basically saying, if you've got the Holy Ghost, you have the keys. You know? Um, so anyone with the, the baptism of fire with the Holy Ghost has the keys of heaven, you know, that has access to that information. So that was kind of the goal was to, so this printed edition has some really, really cool stuff. Um, and obviously some of the editions are more recent revelations to Denver, you know, that have been added and ratified. The, the most significant thing though is in the history of LDS Mormonism, the Book of Mormon was never voted on and accepted as part of the canon. Never, if you can believe that. Um, and we as a body chose to vote and accept the Book of Mormon as part of the canon and as a covenant to guide our lives. So basically, that's like you've heard people talk about within the movement, there's the covenant. By and large, that is part of the covenant is not just to say we believe in the Book of Mormon, but to really try and do what the Book of Mormon encourages, but try and live by what it teaches. Gotcha. So are there people that don't recognize those as scripture in different fellowships? Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if there are. Yeah, I mean, I they, they'd be at liberty to continue. I mean, I'm so used to my LDS edition that I still use those. My like the restoration edition, I will cross-reference them and see if there are differences. And obviously for some of the newer stuff, I, but I've got an app on my phone that's got them on. So someone in the movement created an app so you can just have them on your phone. So, you know, and that, you see that it's, this is a fascinating thing. We have no hierarchy, no organization, but stuff's still happening. You know what I mean? Um, and that's, you know, so some guy, I don't know who it was. Was it Darren? I don't know who it was. Decided to create an app. So now, oh, yeah, it was so, Darren. So now we have on our Android phones the restoration edition of the scriptures. So even if I don't have them with me, if I want to cross-reference between my LDS edition and that edition, I can look things up. So, Okay, yeah. so that's probably one of the biggest updates that has happened since we last did an episode that, you know, we were talking about a potential scripture thing and now it's done. Yeah, very uh, beehive spirit of you all. You really, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, yeah. It's funny because in my mind, I'm like, there's no way you can have a bunch of people all following the Holy Ghost, building Zion, because it's going to be mayhem. You've got to have a leader, right? That's what we think. You got to have, you know, captains of fifty and captains of hundreds, and you know, otherwise it's all going to fall apart. But the reality is, like. There was a lot of fighting in the movement. Yeah, it has not been smooth to come up with the statement of principles, that original idea of, hey, this is our statement of principles. This is what we're all going to agree on. There was tons of fighting about that. Once that was resolved, everything went smoothly. It's been really interesting to watch that. And now you look back and you're like, what were we all fighting about? You know what I mean? It seems so petty. Um, And I really think that's part of, at least in my view, kind of God's handiwork is it's kind of like a bunch of four-year-olds fighting about 
what to put in the picture. And then when we're all done, we're like, hey, look, look at the picture we created. God's like, yeah, good job. Nice job. Let's put it on the fridge. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But I do understand your skepticism, Lindsay, that because I think I share that basic, you know, that notion that, I mean, that's what happens throughout history is you have something good going and then time and the, you know, people's selfishness and people's desire to have, you know, a leader to turn to kind of ruins it. But it's kind of something where we're like, okay, so far, so good. I'm almost, I'm as astonished as anyone else that it's actually been, there have been times that have been really beautiful. And I've been very surprised because that's not what I would have guessed would have happened. Um, And I, I, you know, I think that in some ways it's going to be, the proof is going to be in the pudding. You know what I mean? We're actually going to have to see if this pans out. And I am uh, just um, faithful enough to believe I think we can pull it off. But there's a part of me that's like, you know what? I'll, Most people I'll, fail. I'll be- <laughs> you know, I believe and then we'll see. But I think we can't actually claim we've accomplished anything till Zion's built and Jesus comes again, you know. But uh, we'll see, you know. We're going to do the best we can. Okay, so what else is going on? What are some of the big things? Tell us about so, some of yeah. your conferences, your projects. I mean, I mean, collectively speaking. So I think the ultimate goal, like if you want to know what the vision of this movement is, I think the ultimate goal is to build Zion yeah. and to have a temple. And, you know, the mechanics of how that is going to play out is quite fascinating because... If you look at the history of the early church, Joseph would say, oh, we're going to build a temple and uh, let's choose, Lord, is this spot okay? And the Lord would ratify the spot and they'd build a temple um, and they'd get driven out of town and then they'd go and build another one. And, um, you know, Naboo never even got done all the way and it got burned and hit by a tornado and was used as a barn. I mean, the Naboo temple has kind of a sad ending there but um we're gonna build a temple at some point but denver has said he will not choose a place and ask the lord to approve it he just won't so how we're gonna find out where the temples to be built in the mountains here on the everlasting hills how that's gonna happen i don't know um but that's got to happen sometime in the future Will that temple have ordinances similar to the LDS temple? I doubt it. I I have no clue what those ordinances will be like, but I do think that they'll be, uh, you know, instructive. I think the temple will be the center of cultural celebrations, a place of learning, um, a place where people can come for refuge and to relieve the poor. And I think the kind of the precursor to that is how we administer tithing in the movement right now. So how's that working? Um, the tithing thing? Yeah. Really well. So it's just, you're, you do it in your fellowship. You do it in your fellowship. Or even by your own. Yeah. Like if I want to self-administer my tithes, like I see someone who's struggling, I can, you know, take care of that and count that as my tithing. Um 
or as a group, we get together. Like the way our fellowship does it is we put our tithing in a box. I know this sounds pretty rudimentary. And we put it in in cash. And then we, by common consent, we just pray about who has needs. So if someone has a need, no one person administers the money. It's just we all do it. And so we pray about can so-and-so, can we fix their car? Can we pray for their kids' preschool? Can we help them buy groceries? Can we pay for their you know, chemo treatment? Whatever it might be. And we'll pray about it. And once it's unanimous, we send them the money or give them the money and take care of it. Um, and it's really very efficient. It's not like long waiting processes or whatever. Like typically we decide that evening what we're going to do with the money. And then if there's excess in our fellowship, which there usually is, then we kind of like just hold on to it until there's a need elsewhere. And then we'll all pray about it and, and decide, okay, yeah, we're going to send that money to these folks up north who, you know, are having health challenges or someone needs a home and they're being evicted. And so they need their rent paid for three months or something like that, you know, so. Yeah, I, I like that. It's it's still again to the my skepticism, but it's not a it's a skepticism that I hold, but it's not that I'm hoping for it to fail. I think that you know ex Mormons are kind of snarky about this because they've chosen to deal with this sort of crisis of identity by not identifying as Mormon, and so it's hard for them to understand why you would still want yeah. to put your faith in something, right? So, uh, yes, yeah, so I heard a talk this last Sunday, so. A good friend of mine gave a talk, and he said that, and I really like this. He said that we are, as Latter-day Saints, very, um, he didn't use the word addicted, but we, we have this obsession with certainty. And I think that certainty is sometimes the enemy of truth, because we're certain that all this whole list of things is true. And because of that certainty, we're not open to anything new or different. Then when folks leave the church, they they are now 100% certain that none of it's true, that it's all bogus. And I think, once again, they just take that certainty or maybe a little bit of hubris, you know, with them. And so I think that there's a great power to be had in saying, you know what, I don't know. I'm uncertain because that's like the good seedbed, that humility for faith to grow and for time and experience and pondering to kind of figure it out. You know, Wendy and I didn't just jump in and like, oh, remnant movement, let's try this. You know, we, well, we did try. <laughs> it was a little like that. <laughs> it was kind of. But, but we were. We'd been spent we a lot of years. Yeah. yeah, we spent a lot of years looking at a lot of different things, and when this came along. We, you know, we gingerly put our foot in the to- in the water, and then we got baptized. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then six months later, took the covenant. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, um, it's it's been an interesting journey, but I think that certainty is definitely dangerous because it it erases faith and it erases humility a little bit. Yeah, I hope I hope that people listening can understand that. It's so hard, you know, on this podcast, I interview so many different people and I always want to say, but, but you're normal. And uh, I think everyone is, that's what's so unusual about the remnant movement is you don't really have anything that distinguishes you from on the outside. Like you don't, 
have a different dress or outfit or marking that that sets you apart yeah. from a Latter-day Saint. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because in the movement, some people are active, at the temple attending, garment wearing, never touch a cup of coffee. There are people who are active, don't wear my garments, love my coffee. There are people who are, I go to church twice a year in the LDS church. I go to an evangelical church most Sundays. I drink coffee and I don't wear my garments. And you got people who have been excommunicated, still wear their garments. You got people who withdrew their names from the church and don't wear, you know, it's just all over the map. But we all love each other. And there's no like checking, you know, there's no like, it's it's fascinating to me, Lindsay. It is so fascinating. Um, and I really, there's a beauty there that's hard to, you know, you have to kind of try it to figure it out. So, Okay, so let's talk about what's, what is Denver up to these days? Um, I, don't yeah, I don't know. Like, <laughs> he did the Sean McCraney thing. He went on Heart of the Matter. Um, and he does blog. You know, he'll post on his blog yeah, every other week. He posted yesterday about humility and weakness. Some of those things are just kind of a rehash of uh, other talks he's given where he'll post something. Sometimes it's really insightful and you're like, holy cow. And sometimes you're like, oh, yeah, I remember that came from that one talk. Um, the most recent thing he posted is, and I don't know, are you familiar with in Section 84 where the Lord basically condemns the church and says, because you've treated the Book of Mormon lightly, the church is now under condemnation. I mean, that happened really early in like 1832. Do you recall that? I do. I do. I don't recall the interpretation being yeah, quite so, as said, but. Yeah. And then President Benson made a big deal about it in the mid 80s about, hey, we have to flood the earth with Book of Mormon to lift this condemnation, you know. Um, and so essentially that condemnation's never been lifted. Well, Denver posted yesterday that because of the scripture project being approved and being done and us trying to not just say we're doing it, but actually trying to do it, that he feels like the Lord has removed that condemnation from us. Um, but if we don't keep working at it and trying to love one another and doing it, that maybe that, you know, the Lord will give this work to another people, you know? So it was, that was a good post. It was a really good post. And so I think that's a significant thing. Yeah. You know, if you look at it from the historical standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I'm trying to think of what else we should cover. Temples. You can ask us anything. Yeah. Is there anything new? Is there any new project that people are working on or a shift or a change or anything controversial? I feel like for a long time we were working on toward that statement of principles and that's when there was uh, a lot, there was like some drama. Yeah. Some drama, a lot of disagreement. And once we finally came to a consensus on that, um, then it's kind of been the scriptures, but now I would say it's people are kind of looking toward the temple. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. Like, how can we raise the money to build a temple? You know, how can we, um, how's that going to work? What's, you know. And the three women that decided to create the temple fund are still administering it. And, you know, so we write our, I mean, this is the thing is because we're not organized or incorporated. 
when I send them a check, I don't get a tax deduction for it. You know what I mean? So which is also something that's kind of different. When I'd write my check to LDS Inc., I'd get a tax deduction. This way, I don't get a tax deduction. But for some reason, it's a lot more fulfilling, you know, personally. So I think the temple is the next big thing to keep an eye out for. Some kind of announcement about that in the next... Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> I'd be speculating two to five years. But I have no Somewhere idea. in there. Um, and then we are going to do a conference in Boise in... Is that in March? March, yeah, March. probably. So there'll be a general conference in Boise in March. And then another one in... September. Yeah. And those, it's kind of funny the democracy of how the conferences work because you just any fellowship can decide to put on a conference. And we thought, oh, hey, our fellowship, we thought, hey, we should host a conference at our, uh, you know, down in Utah County. Um, and we thought, okay, what, why don't we plan for the conference a year from now? And then through the grapevine, we heard, oh, somebody already kind of wanted to do a conference a year from now. And so we had to improvise and we had a, we really wanted to do a conference. So we had a summer conference, which you normally don't have, but that's sort of, because there's no official, no official, you know, like Olympic committee to choose where the conference is going to be. We, you just kind of have to, you know, put the word out there and hope you're not stepping on anyone's toes. And if you are, you just... Work it out. Yeah, work it out and do something else. Yeah. So we did a summer conference in... Last summer. At, at the Satan Expo Center. What's it called now? Uh, it's the... Oh, I don't remember. It's the yeah. Mountain America. Is it still yeah, there? Yeah, we did it there. Well, and you guys, um, we have a lot of remnant involvement at some Conference. What would, you, what would you say to people who say you're not Mormon? Oh, to people who say we're not Mormon? Well, that's usually... Isn't that usually LDS people that say we're not Mormon? And that, they say that about everyone that's not they LDS. They say that about themselves. <laughs> they do say that about themselves. So <laughs> I don't know. So I, a name's a name to yeah. me. I'm like, call me whatever you want. And it goes back to what Wendy was saying earlier. If someone says they're Mormon, I'm going to claim them. You know what I mean? I think the the cousins of the Restoration have been bickering for way too long. We need to just all get along with each other and love each other. So yeah. Well, that is what I have been saying as well. So I appreciate. The, the message as well can i ask you about a controversial thing i don't want to end on this but sure. i did hear rumors of like the bonded marriage thing can you explain what happened with that explain what that is and what happened because i want to talk about that i have not so, heard of that so so um all i know is there was a dude who said hey we must have known each other in a prior life it, it's kind of like kind of what jim harmstrom was doing down in uh, Manti back in the day and it was just like a handful of individuals and it was I don't even know where this took place or who it was but someone did have their priesthood taken away from them by a council of 12 women oh I did hear about that yeah. and so that that's it's interesting because the way priesthood works is in order to function in your family you don't need permission from anyone but if you want to, if I want to go baptize people outside of my own family, I have to be sustained by at least seven women. One of them has to be my wife. And then to take that permission away from me, a council of 12 women needs to do that. 
So women are the only ones that can sustain someone with priesthood, um, you know, to exercise priesthood. So I know that a council was called and someone had their priesthood taken away from them. And it was because of some, like, I mean, adultery is adultery is adultery. You know what I mean? And people try and call it all kinds of different things. But if it's adultery, if it walks like a duck and dogs like a duck, it's adultery. Well, it sounded like predatory. It was, yeah, there was something like that. Yeah. I don't know. I was watching it and I don't bring this up to like say, oh, here's the seedy thing. I, I mean, partially because I think it is really seedy and interesting, but also because in my experience, it's very difficult for Mormons all across the spectrum to not to be able to avoid the idea of polygamy. And so I was waiting for it to sort of come to the remnant movement. And it seems like it did in the form of, like you said, there was a man who believed that in a former life, he was like Abraham and he was promised to one of his wives and they, because they were former people and they were sealed in a former life, their sealing is still present today, even though they're in different bodies now or something like that. And yeah, yeah. That's kind of how it was explained to me when I asked about it. Um, and even Denver it shut to, it down, right? He was like, no. I yeah, like Denver has that. been anti-plural marriage from the get-go. And I think partly because of this, this, this nastiness that comes out of it. You know what I mean? I know that there are good people out there that live plural marriage in a respectful way and are loving and kind to their spouses. But I, I think, I don't know. Within this movement, it's something that I don't think will be tolerated um, in any way, shape, or form, except in the sense of, okay, if you were, you know, in the AUB before and you've decided to come into the movement, obviously you've got to love and care for your spouses and your children, but you're to teach your kids that this is not to be perpetuated, just because it does. In the back of Mormon men's minds, it creates a... I don't know, like a little escape clause in their marriage covenant, like a justification. I mean, think about how many LDS men have committed adultery because of, in the back of their minds, they're like, well, maybe it'll be okay. You know, I know my wife's going to, I don't know. I think she was supposed to be my wife. And I think a lot of craziness has happened because of that idea. And Denver has shut that down big time. And, you know, I just, so would that point to a hierarchy, though, when I mean, so the way you explained it with the council, it seems more local level. So there are some stops in place as far as things, because obviously a guy could do that. He could get followers and he'd probably start his own thing. But the remnant, the other fellowships wouldn't claim that. No, no. And that's that's kind of the that's kind of the apostasy um, prevention, apostasy control. the apostasy control that exists in the remnant movement is if one fellowship gets off track big time, basically they just self-excise. You know what I mean? Like people would probably quit inviting them to conferences and and they secede from the union. (laughs) I don't know what it looks like. But yeah, I mean, so we, we just wouldn't recognize them as part of the movement anymore. You know, um, but how that looks, I don't know. But that particular guy, that the one I'm aware of anyway, it, it was, was a, like an individual. It, it was an individual, and like a bunch of ladies got together and said, "We need to stop this." And so they called a, a council, and 
voted to rescind his right to use priesthood. So, are there any other big controversies right now that you know people are grappling with as as a more collective movement uh, ideologies or I think uh, you know I think that um, like a lot of folks that leave the church, I mean this is a minor one maybe. Um, people are experimenting with how they interpret the word of wisdom. So I have heard Denver mention a couple of times about the importance of the word of wisdom and following it. And, um, but how we interpret it is pretty loose. Like the uh, hot drinks are not tea and coffee, for example. They would be hot, like as in, you know, distilled liquor that you drink and burns its way down. You know, that would be a hot drink. And, you know, beer would probably be okay because it's a mild drink made from grains. But I think maybe that some of the youngsters in the movement, you know, that the early tw- in their early 20s have maybe taken some liberalities with that interpretation. Um, and like a lot of Mormons believe the strict confines of the LDS church, they then have never learned to monitor their alcohol usage. I think maybe there's a little bit of that. Not so much that it's a, I wouldn't say, I've never seen it except maybe on one occasion where someone had one too many beers. But I think that Denver maybe is concerned about it. So he's mentioned it in a couple of talks. But that's me reading into a couple of talks, you know. But as far as big controversies, I think that staying away from uh, plural marriage is a big deal. I don't think that's you know, that's ever going to fly in the movement. Yeah. So, yeah, do we have, contro- it seems like we had more controversies before. Before, the, it's kind of chilled out. kind of still right yeah. now, but we will definitely get in touch with you if something comes up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd love to, I I, think, it's so interesting to see a movement with this much traction still kind of in its infancy. It's not, definitely yeah. not as messy, messy as Kirtland or anything like that, but. It's not, and we are baptizing people, like, we had a baptism in our fellowship last week. Yeah. Or and, ago. you know, I know of baptisms that happen fairly regularly, you know. So people are finding their way into the movement. I would say at least every other week we have someone new visiting us. Yeah. We always have so people on our, you know, are, they sometimes they're seeking, sometimes they're just curious, but it's nice to have, you know, yeah, new people to meet and talk to and, you know. What yeah. what would you say is the main thing that joins people or attracts people to this movement? I think it's simplicity in some regards. I think there's a simplicity and a they they're looking for truth and they're looking for a safe space in which to explore truth without um someone kind of trying to fix them or correct them. You know, when I was squarely in the box in the church I was always worried about offending God or my kids screwing up or, you know, me doing something that would somehow jeopardize my salvation. And subsequently, I'm just really, I feel like free, free to explore my faith, free to act in faith and not be afraid. And I think part of it comes from just adopting an understanding of the character of God that is a little different where God is loving and gracious and, 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 and excited to help us and anxiously engaged in helping us 
He's not out to get us. And accepting of us in, in our diversity. I know I used to think of God as like a man in a business suit at 47 East North Temple Street, you know, that that you that I needed to be like that in order to be approved by God. And now I definitely perceive God as someone who loves us for our individual personalities and for our diversity. And I would say what I don't I don't know if I could say what attracts most people to the movement, but I know what attracts me is getting the light of Mormonism without the darkness. It's like the the things that never sat with me that seemed kind of just wrong, those all just kind of fell away and we can just appreciate what is light and good about it and you, you cannot can, deny, you know, yeah. black people the priesthood and yeah. Or have to explain why we would have done that in the past or yeah, anything like Yeah, that. we can go to the buffet and only eat what we want. We don't we're not you know, the whole idea of not being a cafeteria Mormon. Well Jesus was a cafeteria Jew. So I'm gonna be a cafeteria Mormon and only believe the things that resonate with me. And God's okay with that. So I love that. Okay, uh, two more questions, then I'll let you go. Uh, how are you attracting young people? Do you have young people? Because I've met a bunch of kids at BYU that have joined. Yeah, so I mean, I know that there are college-age kids. Yeah. I mean, of our kids, like we we are very careful not to push or prod or um, in any way try and influence our children, which is a big departure from our parenting style of five years ago. <laughs> yeah. Like, so we've got a son who will go on a mission. He is so squarely in the box. He wants to go to BYU. He wants to go to BYU. Like, there's no question that that's his path. And we're cool with that. I will pay for the mission. I will pay for BYU, you know. And then I've got a daughter who's, she's been rebaptized. When she turned 18, she wanted to be rebaptized. So we were like, sure, we'll rebaptize you. And so, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, we have. Yeah. And that's part of the reason we've stayed in the church is because our kids were already so they'd been raised in the church and that to tear them away from that. uh, It seemed unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We want them to, you know, be able to explore and. Yeah. Decide for themselves. And so the youngsters that are in the movement, they they even had a youth conference this summer. Mm. And that kind of thing are, you yeah, know, yeah. Yeah, you know, so there's lots of, uh, I'm Facebook friends with some of the olders, older ones that are in the Orem Fellowship. Okay, yeah. Um, and that's the thing is every fellowship is different. We don't have that many youth in our fellowship because we have a lot of families with young kids in our fellowship. And that's just how it worked out. We're one of the older families. Yeah. Of our and, and, and we just attend where we attend because that's where we made friends. But there's no like geographical boundaries. So, like, we have an older couple from Sanaquin. Yeah, and a lady that comes from Orem. Orem and, and, you know, and there's sometimes a lady from Pleasant Grove that visits. So, it all just depends on where you want to attend. But if there's a potluck. We go to that. We go to that. (laughs) So, that's how I want to end. I want you to maybe tell the audience one thing you wish people knew about the movement and then kind of explain if people want to get involved how they could contact you. So... I think that the movement is best characterized by what it is in favor of, not by what it is opposed to. We're very pro things. We're not very anti things.
doctrines, if that makes sense. So we are pro the doctrine of Christ, as taught in the Book of Mormon. We're pro learning. We're pro embracing new things and trying new ideas. Um, and we're pro seeking God and seeking revelation. And if you get a revelation that's different than mine, we'll labor together and figure out who was right, you know? I would say, and this sounds maybe a little more specific, but I'll just say it because it's the first thing that came to my mind, um, that I would like people to know that um, coming to the movement, you, as a woman, you truly can have a voice and you can have visibility and you can be a full participant. And that is something that I have kind of been in awe of and am really coming to appreciate. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks so much. How can people who this message resonates with contact you? Or even if people are curious, you know, sometimes I get press asking how they can contact. Who who are the best people to talk to about these things? So there is a website. Uh, there's a fellowship locator that will help you get in touch with whoever's closest to you, whether or not those folks become your buddies and you resonate to want to attend. So there is a fellowship locator. What site is that? I'll email it to you if you want. And then zionsreturn.org is a good website that was put together by a bunch of folks. Uh, so zionsreturn.org. It's got really good YouTube videos. It has some, like Kirk and Karen Strong and Matt Lohmeyer has their interviews on. And so I think that's a good resource for learning things. And you could also kind of fill out the form and they would put you in touch with, you know, whoever's closest to you. Yeah. So just fellowshiplocator.info. So if you're in Japan or I don't know, there's fellowships all over the place. So where do the folks go who are into bonded marriage? Just ask. <laughs> <laughs> we wish we knew. I didn't even, I don't even know which fellowship that was yeah. in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They could, yeah. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, you guys, You're for taking the time much. to come on here. I know it's kind of nerve wracking for you, Wendy, especially. So I appreciate it. Um, well, and are you guys going to be? Do, do you have any plans to present at Sun Sunstone this year? That might, that might Maybe be fun. Wendy can. We might enjoy it if if you'll have us, Lindsay. Yeah. I would love that. Uh, if you guys haven't heard these two talk theology, they they know what they're talking about. If they're not just trained in Mormon theology, but they understand it very well, and so. I go to them often with questions when I need help understanding difficult theological questions. <laughs> so thank you for that as well. You're too kind. And then an another website would be restorationarchives.com. So that's got the scriptures on. It's got a bunch of stuff on. Okay, perfect. Well, thanks again. Is there anything else you want to say before I let you go? No, we just appreciate you. We think you're a bright uh, light in, in the world of Mormonism. And Seriously. The yeah. work you do with the marginalized communities is incredible. And um, you're just, yeah, you're fabulous. You're a really, you know. I love how you treat everyone with open-minded open-mindedness and like this warmth and kindness. Like Except everyone. maybe John McNaughton. But honestly, <laughs> honestly, this is what it is. I'm way more judgy about him as an art critic than as like a Mormon. Yeah. Uh, but like, interviewing him on your podcast, you might hit him with hardball questions, 
but I can't imagine you being unkind to him. Well, Brother McNaughton, you are welcome to come on. I would like to talk to you about the book and (laughs) I would like to talk to you about your art because I don't think that he is, he lacks talent. I think, um, maybe vision (laughs) is what he lacks. (laughs) Okay. You just talked about how open-minded I am and then I proved you wrong. That's what (laughs) (laughs) No one's perfect, Lindsay. (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, you guys, you guys are working on it. So thanks, thanks again so much, and uh, I'll put up the links, and we'll have this up soon. Thanks so awesome. much. Have a good thanks, one. Thanks, Lindsay. Take care. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening. <laughs>